Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, uh, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That is true. Uh, Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the Internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. We've got a new interview up with Michael Elias, who uh, is writing suspense novels now, but he, uh, he had written for television. He'd been on The Tonight Show as a comedian with his partner, comedian partner. He wrote for film. He wrote The Jerk. Uh, he wrote the, created the series Head of the Class. He just really has done a lot. Very interesting guy. Knew a lot of interesting people. Has some great stuff to say. Check it out. It's uh, right now up on authormagazine.org. And, of course, we're funded by the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication, since 1955, like a lot of writers' conferences, ours happens in September, PNWA, the Pacific Northwest Writers' Conference, uh, probably going to be virtual, like a lot of conferences are having to be. The Willamette Writers' Conference down in Portland this summer, uh, that's going to have to be virtual. I'll be taking part in that. So look for it. You know, it's nice. to. Do, I love meeting people and getting together, but with the virus, I don't think it's going to happen for the usual conference season, which starts about now. So a lot of them are going to, have to be virtual, but I think it's going to be okay. There's going to be some stuff we're going to learn that we're going to carry over to other conferences. It's going to be all right. We'll get back to next year. We'll be seeing each other again, but there's going to be some stuff we learn. You know, uh, today it's June 2nd. Um, as I do this live broadcast, some of you listen to it on iTunes or after the fact, but it's June 2nd and there's a lot going on. I don't normally talk about current events, I'm not really going to talk about it now, but it's much on my mind as it, as it is, I'm sure, on yours. And um, whenever I look at events like this, and, and even though it's happening in downtown Seattle and I live in Seattle, so it's nearby, we're always looking at things from a distance. And it's easy to draw conclusions about things. But think about the stories you've tell you've told and the stories you tell and the stories you read and chaos and anger and confusion and fear are the middle of the story. They are not the end of the story. They are the moments when we are stuck in something we don't want and we are not at peace. We're frustrated and scared, and that's where we are now, and it's not the end. And despair is not wisdom, and hopelessness is not wisdom, and it's not the truth. And everybody doing things that are frightening, all the violence from protesters and the violence from the police, even those actions which are so hard to understand, being done by people who have histories longer than we know, acting out of their own fears and beliefs that we don't know, trying to understand what we don't know. But we do know that this is not the end. It's just the middle. And the middle is always the hardest part of the story. Life doesn't end, of course, but these events do. They'll lead to other stories, but we're not at the end. We don't know what it is. That said, 
I want to talk to our guest today, Ashley E. Sweeney. Likes to write about history. And, uh, well, history teaches us, can teach us a lot about the arc of tragedy and conflict and uncertainty. Ashley uh, is the winner, actually, the 2000, speaking of the PNWA, she's the winner of the 2017 Nancy Pro Book Award for her debut novel, Eliza Waite. In fact, if you want to, if you go on Author Magazine, you can watch my conversation I had with her just moments after she won that award. It was a great conversation. That's for Eliza Waite. Uh, She's a native New Yorker. She's a graduate of Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. But now she resides here in the Pacific Northwest and Tucson, Arizona. Uh, Answer Creek is her second novel. came out just two weeks ago. And she has long been enamored with undeserved women's, or underserved, excuse me, underserved women's voices. Her technique to hitch a heroine to history dovetails. It's an unfortunate fact. Women's stories make up only a fraction of narratives set in the American West, but she aims to rectify that. And she is doing that. Ashley, how are you doing? Oh, thanks so much for having me today, Bill. It's my pleasure, Ashley. Um, so we were chatting a little bit before this. This is your second novel, but you had a full, I mean, you, you had a number of careers before you, you dipped your toe into fiction. Um, and you were taught, describing to me how uh, your life sort of changed in the early 70s when you started doing um, domestic Peace Corps work, VISTA, which took you from New York to to Salem, Oregon, was it? Correct. Yeah, and you kind of got a new view of the world as a young, bright-eyed woman, I guess, yeah? I did. You know, growing up in New York has its... its own aura and to come out to the Pacific Northwest just as a college graduate and to live in a small house with a lot of other roommates making $300 a month and being on food stamps gives you an entirely different view of the world. And actually, I never really went back to New York to live after that. I stayed in the Pacific Northwest after that. So what was the what what did you see? So you're you're college grad and you 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 said you were what was you were working what was the name of the hospital? It was called Love's Cry Medical Center. What was the it cr- called? The the cry of love was the name of the medical center. It was a sliding scale clinic in a poor section of Salem. And it, it really was actually, Bill, when I think back, it fulfilled my first career dream because back in seventh grade, um, at Simpson junior high in Huntington, New York, we had to fill out a career survey and it was Uh supposed to come back with the whole array of careers that you might be suited for and oh oh one of those yes and so i was probably 13 um i was sitting in homeroom 28 mrs canzoni and i got my got my results back and it had one only one pathway (laughs) and it was the peace corps Really? That what? Was it. Seriously? Like it didn't. <laughs> the say only thing you could do is the peace corps. Just forget or the rest. Teacher or <laughs> doctor, nothing. Everybody else had these long <laughs> lists, and mine had one. So 
you know that that does color you know a young mind and so when I graduated from college I graduated um, in American history and American literature I really felt convicted that I needed to stay domestically although I would have loved to have been a Peace Corps volunteer that would have meant I would have had to leave the country for two years. And so I opted for the domestic Peace Corps, which was called VISTA at the time. And that was a one-year commitment. And it did, it it changed my life. So what, if you were writing up a story about a a fictional Ashley Sweeney, what year is it? (laughs) What year did you do? Did you do VISTA? What was the year? Are you you, you, you willing to tell us? 1979. All right. oh, that's what I was going to guess. All right. How interesting is that? Okay. So it's 1979. You got your flare pants. You got your big hair. Yep. You got your big yep. collars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're out there you in it. Salem. <laughs> what, what did she, if you were writing about her, what would she see? What were her experiences that changed her? What was it that, that she just, that woke her up to something? What was it specifically? Can you remember? Do you remember a few well, of the things? Well, I, I can. And just to step back a couple of years before that, when I was a senior in high school, I had an amazing English teacher named Mr. McGillicuddy and in his <laughs> senior AP English class. He, he looked like Gregory Peck. You've got to picture him. Wow. He had wow. he was right. tall and quiet and he had the dark glasses and, you know, the yeah. aquiline nose. And he, he just he, he cut the he cut the p- perfect picture out of central casting but he he really encouraged us to speak up for injustice and we studied the scarlet letter and cried the beloved Mm -hmm. country and Macbeth and the book of job and there we are 18 years old and you know he's preparing us for the rest of our lives but this to answer your question, it goes back to a day. It was just days before we graduated, and he sat at the corner of his desk like he usually does, and he took off his glasses, and he looked at all of us, and he said, open your eyes. Mm. That's all he said for, for 45 minutes. That's so it? So here, that's it. So, you know, everybody's kind of like looking around and looking Uh down at the desk and, you know, looking at the floor and the dust motes. And for 45 minutes, we had to sit with that command, open your eyes. (laughs) Wow. And so I call that the spring of my awakening. So, so really the opening of my eyes happened four years earlier than when I arrived in Salem as so a visitor here. So something had already begun to open up. In yes. Yes. And my parents were very um, active politically as a little girl. I was stuffing envelopes and riding around in the cars with the loudspeakers and going to political rallies and marches. So my, my right. young eyes were open but it yeah. was sitting in the gravitas of that moment as an 18-year-old, like, it wasn't about me or, you know, sports or boyfriends or clubs or what we were going to do on Friday night. Like, there was a whole world outside of that window that was suffering, and that, in, and that 
feeling that I needed to do something has never stopped. I've been a civic activist my whole life, whether I've been a mother, journalist, teacher, grandmother, now an author. That right. That is part of the fiber of my being. Um, you know, I, I have a... I have a sign ready to go today to go up to their little roundabout in Laconer. Um, right. Let's just love one another. So, yeah. you know, I, I do what I can as I can, but my writing voice is really where I feel like I have the most power at this point. Right. Right. You know, um, so your, your passion for fiction is um, the underserved, women's voices, particularly in the American Correct. West, right? So right. I, so there's the easy answer, the obvious answer of why were they underserved. But, you know, here's, a, but here's what I'm, I'm, I'm going to push you a little bit. Only because okay. whenever, I am, whenever I see something I've actually done portrayed, like I used to work in restaurants, and I'd see restaurants portrayed, I'd think that's not the way it is. Let me tell you what was really like when you've actually, or what the military must be like for people who've actually been in the military. What do you mm-hmm. think, what is the deep answer to why the voices weren't as heard? I mean, there's the easy answer of the patriarchy, which I'm sure is a part of it, but there's always more to it than that. Isn't there, isn't there always deeper stuff going on? There is, but they, they kind of fall in line, you know, patriarchy, misogyny, xenophobia, violence, racism, they, they, they all, they're all there in the same cloud. And mm. we, we only hear about, for instance, Annie Oakley or Calamity right. Jane. Like when, when you think, Bill, that hundreds of thousands of people were in the Westford diaspora, mm. we have a few journal entries from women that have survived that time. And other than that, if you look at stories set in the American West, they're mainly about male protagonists. And so right. I just figure, you know, I've, I'm, I'm here, you know, in my 60s, you know, figuring, you know, what, you know, I've got maybe a dozen novels in me at this <laughs> point. I, sure. I'm, those are, those are going to be 12 stories that were never told before and and I must make a point that none of my protagonists are historical characters they're all right. a composite of right. women of that of that time some authors choose to portray historical personages but I've chosen to create a fictional protagonist so that I can then imbue her with the qualities that I would you know, like her to have, and her eyes are open. She is an observer of right. what is happening in in a particular time. In Eliza Waite, that was during the Klondike Gold Rush. In Answer Creek, that's as a member of of the Donner Party. Yes, and of course, you went of course after the Donner the... Party is. Yeah, right. I mean, what do you, what do you think of when you think of the Donner Party? There's only well, one I thing. Do. Yes, of course. Right? And I, I, it's a so, fascinating, I watched, a, I'm not going to, but I watched a long documentary made by, um, you may have watched it. Um, what's his name? Our, oh God, the PBS, the Civil War, you know, Ken Burns. Oh, Ken, Ken Burns, Burns did a great documentary on it. And yeah. I thought it yep. was mm-hmm. fast. I'm sure yep. you probably watched it mm-hmm. as part of your research. Oh, um, yes. 
along with hundreds of other books and movies. Right. <laughs> yes, yes but, I think know, of one horrible got, detail of that. Yes. Right, right. But you consider that these were 91 people, yeah. pe- people who walked this earth. They walked across the country. Like in, in Westerns, it shows that people rode in wagon trains. They didn't right. ride. Everybody walked. You only rode in the wagon train if you were elderly, infirm, um, you know, expecting a baby. So you walked more than 2,000 miles. And, you know, we we can drive Highway 80 in a couple of days, but they walked for six months. And there's weather, geography, and insects, and poor water, and no fuel, and looking for grass for the animals, and dust. I mean, dust was everywhere. Talk about lack of maps and hostile forces and so it it was um I, I there was a great book a couple of years ago um by Rinker Buck it was called The Oregon Trail mm-hmm. and he and his brother re recreated the journey with a uh, with pack mules and it's really it's, it's really irreverent it's a wonderful book called The Oregon Trail but he said that the Donner Party is the drama of the mundane gone madly wrong. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I ha- yeah, I had that posted above my desk for the entire two years I was writing, that these are ordinary people. They're farmers and businessmen with their right. families, you know, trying to make a better life for themselves, and they miss the window of opportunity to cross the Sierra Nevada mountains by one day. Wow. Because of that, the early because of the storm. blizzard. Do you know, do you know what's one funny? Day. I was driving over Stevens Pass, which in, in this, it's, which is in north right. of Seattle, north east of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was going over to teach and I was coming back. It was in February and I got hit in a blizzard and I got, and my tire blew out at the top of Stevens pass. Oh, and my. I thought, I know it was really, it was bad. Like I, I didn't like, what am I going to do? I can't, couldn't, I couldn't change it. And, uh, but I got these, these Russians gave me a lift down, but I was thinking about the Donner party. Not that I was going to eat anybody, yeah. but I was like, right. I'm in the, I got a but, crowd of people around me and this is freaking me out. Uh, yeah. but I can't imagine. And they you know were stuck for a, yeah, they were what, stuck all? for 124 days. And what's so, interesting is these people, they aren't like soldiers. I mean, some of them were, but they weren't people trained in wilderness training. Just like you said, they were people no, just living no. relatively no. Uh, settled lives, setting off on what they should right. do, what you should spend months training to do. But they just walked it. Right. And <laughs> they had no food whatsoever. And for months they ate shoe leather and blankets and book covers and anything that they could. So I've dispelled the rumor that, you know, they murdered each other. They did not. They, they finally resorted to defiling the long dead when they felt that they had no other option. And so I wanted to talk about their humanity, Bill, that these are people that have been judged by history. And like the old adage, until you walk in somebody else's shoes, you do not know exactly what you would do. And I found out a harsh reality that I would not have survived that journey. (laughs) I'm just not that tough. I have no way. (laughs) No, no. So I, 
I mean, my protagonist, stoic as she is, uh, she is on a pedestal to me that she and other people in that party were able to survive. And this is another little known fact. Most of the men died and most of the women survived. I, yeah, I know. Yeah, the women actually yeah. toughed it out. Yeah, they, they lived. There yep. was all kinds of theories around that. Nobody yep. really knows that women yep. have more fat on their body or who knows. But I don't, they do, I, but they but also but I, have to live because of their children. Maybe. I don't know. And I don't so, know, but it's true. Yeah. The men, and yep. I think the women were a little they more were willing tough. to. They were very tough yep. when yep. it came they down to tough. it. How many survived? What did it come down to? Well, there, excuse me, there is um, always one or two off. Everyone has a little bit of a different number. But of the 91, I have 48 surviving and 43 perishing. So it's a little greater than 50%. Right. Um, So it depends what, what, narrative you read some say it's 47 or 46 but it's about half right you know you said something interesting earlier about um you know the you wanted to tell this story and you wanted to focus on the humanity and all the sort of ideas we have about them because of this one detail we know but and not to come back to this but it reminds me of what we're going through now that we can turn on the TV or read the news and we see a lot of things about a lot of people, all different kinds of people doing things, mm-hmm. but they, all of those people have a life that they've led prior to this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we were to tell any one of their stories, I think we would have, if we could know all their stories all the way back to their childhood, whoever you are, the cops, the protests, everybody, we would have a right. different well, view of what they're People are very quick doing. to judge, right? They're very, yes, people are very are. quick to judge. And um, so Actually, in the back of the novel, you know how the editors write questions to discuss. And so I was looking those over the other day, and one of the questions is talking about taboos, and is there a way to overcome the taboos? But the second part of the question is really, I think, the heart of it. How do we start the conversation, especially with those whose worldview differs radically from our own? Yeah. That's one of the you, questions. So yeah. how do we start the conversation? I, you know, I have an answer to that, believe it or not, if you want to hear it. I don't know. It may or may not be relevant yes, I'll, to you. I'll, inter- I'll interview you now. Bill, what well, would no, you have I would answer like to bounce that off question? Of here's, here's how I would answer it for myself and how I, I've had to, because mm-hmm. I teach writing, but it has a very spiritual bent to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what people believe. I know in my audience are probably very conservative. I've known they've been very conservative Christians. There have been fanatical atheists and Catholics and everything in between. Right. But what I always come back to is experience, the experience of writing, the experience mm-hmm. of feeling afraid and then feeling secure of being at peace and then being feel at self doubt. And these experiences mm-hmm. are always universal. Love is universal. Fear is universal. And, there, and to right. me, if I get to the experience of fear, the experience of relief and joy, I can speak to anybody. If I get it about that, just get down to the experience. Does that make sense? Right. Oh, definitely. And we're all surviving trauma in some way. Sure. I, I, wherever on the scale we are on that with the pandemic and, you know, with the unrest in our country. And so I think we all have to focus, too, 
on how we respond to any crisis really shapes our character. So I'm looking to my character, Ada Weeks, and how did she respond to that crisis? And how did that shape her character? And how did she turn out to be a better version of herself than at the beginning of the novel? So I, I, I say that sometimes fiction transcends reality. And in this case, my protagonist, Ada Weeks, is helping me process this time about yeah. how I'm responding to it, how is it shaping my character, and how I can become a better version of myself as a result of it. That's so, so great. That it, yeah, and I, any of us who are writers, I mean, our characters are very real to us. It, mm-hmm. You know, they don't just live on a page. They're 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 fully fleshed characters to a writer and also to many readers and so to take lessons from from fiction i think really propels me to keep to keep at this um, yeah. My father's 91. I hope he's listening. He's written seven <laughs> hi, novels. In, yeah, hi, Dad. He's written seven novels in his retirement. And wow. so, That's you know, great. I'm on number two. So, you know, I, I, I've got some more stories in me, Bill. I bet you do. <laughs> I bet you do. So let me ask you. So how do you, how do you begin approaching a subject if you think the person you're talking to is coming at life from a standing on the other side of the thing you're talking about, whatever it is, having lived from their life. How do you, what's your, what's your in? How do you make it comfortable? Well, well, that's interesting that you ask when my husband, Michael and I took the, the trip across the country, um, mirroring the Oregon, California trail two summers ago on research, you know, we were we were passing through states that, you know, we haven't passed through maybe ever before. Yeah. And we just kept coming to the fact that people have more in common than they have not in common. And yep. so we, we had a delightful just – a dinner with a couple that we met along along the way. We may never have been friends under any other circumstances, but we shared a delightful dinner together and talked about the things that really unite us, our, our families and, you know, our hopes and our dreams. And so I think just talking, breaking it down to a one-on-one conversational level is is probably the best way to diffuse any kind of a situation. Yeah. Well, that's great. And if you, you know, it's too bad, uh, obviously, uh, this book was released two weeks ago, smack in the middle of all this business. Uh, have you tried to do some virtual events? I, I have all of my live events have been canceled and very few of them are being rescheduled at this point because people don't know exactly when they can be. Um, So yes, some virtual events, some uh, wonderful radio interviews and a lot of, a lot of social media. Um, I, I believe a book has a long life. And so I'm, I'm not going to despair that, my launch, you know, was 
more of a bust because right. that's that's looking at the underside of what this book has to offer. This book has a lot to offer, and it's it's going to have a long life one way or the other. That is a good attitude, Ashley. Way to go. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So if people listening to this are like, man, I am so interested in Ashley Sweeney. I have a book group, and I want to read her book, and I want her to Skype in or Zoom in. And talk, sure. first of all, would you do? Would you do that? You would do that. Oh, I do. Yes, I. All do. right, good, mm-hmm. good. All right, so where are they going to find you? What's the best place to go? Oh, I have a great new website, AshleySweeneyAuthor.com, right. and I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under Ashley Sweeney Author as right. well. People, it's a good book. It's a good read. It's compelling. It's something to talk about. Check it out, AshleySweeneyAuthor.com. Now. Ashley, I asked you this question before because I asked it, but you know what happens? People change, Ashley. Their thoughts change, their perspectives change. Mm -hmm. So maybe your Mm -hmm. answer changed. So what I Mm -hmm. want you to do is finish this sentence for me. If writing, now all the writing you've done at this point in your life has taught you anything, it's taught you what? To trust my voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Uh, it's true. Ashley, congratulations on book number two. It's a good one. Uh, I am just assuming you're hard at work on book number three. Is this true? It's true. So I'll meet yeah. you again, Bill. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> well, again, congratulations. It's a lovely book and uh, have fun with it. And uh, I look forward to reading the next one. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Trust your voice, people. Trust your voice. You have a voice. A lot of the pain we're seeing right now are people who do not believe they have a voice. But everybody actually does have one. But you do have to learn to use it. And it's very painful when you think it doesn't matter. But it does. But it does. Believe me. Um, Well, I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries. I want to thank all of you. Be safe. Be kind to each other. And I'll see you next week.